Romans chapter 15. All right, I'd imagine that most of you have been to a music concert at some point. Maybe you went to Waco Symphony or you're at the junior high and took in a band concert, which is always really interesting, or the high school symphony or an orchestra. There's just all sorts of opportunities, and it's pretty amazing. You know, you got everybody, and they're all, all that conductor does, whether he or she just kind of moves their hand, and all of a sudden it all takes off, right? And everybody starts playing, and it, it can be downright impressive. I mean, you have all these different instruments, and they're all playing when they should, what they should do, crescendos, decrescendos. I mean, the music just comes alive. That's when it's working well. But if you've been in band or you've been in orchestra, you know that it can get a little rough, especially if people get lost in the music, okay? If you've ever had this experience where the conductor's trying to do things, and this happens in, it happens in rare occasions, happens more when you're younger than when you're older, but it can happen in any place, and people get lost or they don't come in at the right place, and it gets so bad, it's like a cacophony of confusion, that what happens is the, the conductor just has to stop everything and like, like measure 72, and then they kind of do this, you know, and, and everybody starts getting back on the train, and it, and it works out. There's some parallels, like in the church. It is great when we got unity, and we're all in tune to one another, and there's a wide degree of acceptance and engagement. There's a focus on the Lordship of Christ, and we're really about God and His glory and, and worship. And, and when that takes place, even though you've got all sorts of different people from all different backgrounds and different levels of maturity, when we're all focused on the same thing, focused on God and His glory and growing together, guess what happens? Man, it is like music to God's ears. On the other hand, though, if we're out doing our own thing and we become rather individualistic and lone ranger and we'll decide we'll do what we want to do when we want to do it and who we want to care for and who we're going to ignore, friends, if that happens in the church, it is disaster. It is the farthest thing from what God has really intended for a church to be. He wants us unified. He wants us growing together. But what does that really look like? How does a church really experience unity in Christ? I will tell you, this is so critical that Paul gives such great attention. In fact, God has given like basically a chapter and a half to this very particular issue. And if Romans 15, 1 through 7 isn't a part of the working DNA of a church, you'd almost be hard-pressed to even call it a church. So what does unity look like? Well, first of all, just kind of look at verse 1. If we're going to experience unity in Christ, we've got to be building each other up. Look at verse 1. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. See that? We who are strong. So you remember, if we've been making our way through the, gospel, the book of Romans in chapter 14, he's been talking about those who are strong in the faith, those who are weak. And those who are strong in the faith, those are the ones who understand the great degree of freedom that you have under the Lordship of Christ. When you are following Him as Lord, uh, you no longer have to follow certain rituals. The whole idea of earning God's favor, you realize like that's legalistic and that's actually, you can't earn God's favor because He gives grace. He loves us unconditionally. And so if you're strong, you understand the great freedoms we have in Christ under his lordship. But if you are weak in the faith, meaning you're younger, immature, your understanding of the gospel and its implications is not quite developed, then you're going to suffer 
on how you actually respond to various scenarios. So let me just tell you what was going on in Rome 2,000 years ago. You have believers that had came from like a Jewish background out of Judaism, and they thought you had to follow certain rituals, you had to obey the dietary laws of the Old Covenant, and to think like you're going to have like a ham sandwich or you're going to mix different fabrics like this, that was like for generations my family has said you can't do that. And, and it took a while for them to realize the freedoms that they had in Christ. Or you also had folks that came from the ultra-pagan, Gentile background. They worshipped false gods that were demonic. They may have sacrificed meat to them. They had sacrificed animals and give this meat in a burnt offering. They'd eat some of it, and the other went, part of it went out to the market, and they sold it and made some money off it. You came from a background like that, and you're like, I just can't go there right now. I could not eat that meat when I know that it was sacrificed to an idol because I used to do that. I, it's, I can't go there. Of course, you know that an idol is nothing, just stone or a piece of wood. That meat sacrificed to the idol, that's not any worse or better than any other meat. But if you come from a background like that, you may still be wrestling with those issues in your own life. That's why Paul writes this. And this must have been a major issue in Rome. Verse 1, we who are strong, we need to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. That is the problem. We are so selfish. I'm... I struggle with this. I, I really wish I wasn't a selfish individual. But I've tried to just evaluate how much of my attitude and my decisions are based out of selfishness. How about you? I, I am sure I'm not alone. How much does selfishness, it's all about you, kind of govern your behavior? Paul says we can't just be living to please ourselves. We are to verse 2. Each one of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. We're to engage. That word edification has the idea of building up, like an edifice. You invest in, you support, you strengthen, you encourage. The church is to be a body of believers that are involved and engaged with one another, that we're looking to build one another up. We recognize that we're at all various levels of maturity. I mean, that's true of Fellowship Bible Church. We have saints in our church that have walked with God for years. They just exude a love for Christ. There is a Christ-likeness about them. Their decision-making, how they care, how they invest in ministry, how they live their lives, their encouragement, their words. It's like, oh, they are refreshing. It is awesome to see that kind of maturity. And we, frankly, we've got a lot of them. It is so cool. And do you know in our church we have brand new believers? Like, they were doing good to find the book of Romans today. Like, just, it's, everything is new. And they'd really like to know what does it mean to walk with Jesus and to know his love and to look like him. And that, if that's going to happen, we've got to engage. We have to learn how to encourage. Um, the problem is this. People have a tendency to ignore or to give the cold shoulder to people they don't see eye to eye with. If you look different, you seem to be functioning different, I, you're a different age, you drive a different kind of car, you live in a different neighborhood, I, I, you look a little differently, I, I'm just going to ignore you. And that's what we think. We think that if, well, I'm not going to say anything wrong, I'm not going to cause any problems, 
I'm just going to avoid. I mean, it happens all the time. We're masters at it. You see people and you just kind of look away, you know. I mean, we, we run around. It is so weird. I can't imagine what this looks like from God's perspective as we just avoid all these different people. Cause, but we find our little friends. Oh, here you are. And, I, and then we just, and we want everybody else to pass by. And we're masters at it. But I want you to know something from the Scriptures. That's not the church. In fact, if we are ostracizing people, you are injuring them. You're hurting them. You're actually going against what God is seeking to accomplish in His church. Interesting study that just came out in 2014 at the University of Columbia Souter School of Business. They concluded that being ignored at work is worse than being harassed or bullied at work. I would have thought like being harassed or bullied, that'd be bad. Actually, they had three separate studies, all these team of researchers, can't imagine how much money went into this, and they were measuring the effects of ostracism and harassment in a work environment. And they defined ostracism as this, an individual or a group neglecting to take actions that engage another coworker when it would be customary or appropriate to do so. In other words, ostracism would have, like, um, for instance, if you should greet someone normally, but you ignored them, they call that ostracism. Or if you excluded somebody from an invitation. Or you just went silent when another coworker tried to engage in a conversation you're having, and he's like, boop, conversation over, you're here. What they found, though, is this overt harassment was actually far more painful than anything else you do. In fact, one of the lead authors said this, quote, We've been taught that ignoring someone is socially preferable, Right? If you don't have anything nice to say, don't what? Say anything at all, right? We think we're being civil. We're being kind. But, he writes, ostracism actually leads people to feel more helpless, like they're not worthy of any attention at all. And so you need to know this. If you're ignoring people, excluding them, shunning them, giving them the cold soldier, you basically send the message that your presence is inconsequential. I don't really need you. You're not important. I'll ignore you. I'm going to let my love of self and self-centeredness govern my behavior to such an extent that if I don't feel completely comfortable or if I don't want to engage you or I don't want to really know you, I'll just ignore you. I'm doing the right thing. I'm being kind. I'm being gracious. And you need to know you're wrong. What is this text calling us to do? We're to seek the good of our neighbor. We're to be involved in building up and edifying and encouraging. And friends, let's let's be realistic. We're all in process. Do you know that? We are all growing in our relationship with Christ. Some are brand new believers and some have been growing for a while. But we're all in process. None of us has arrived. No one is perfect. We all have failures. The only thing perfect about us is our Savior, right? And so we recognize you, me, we're, we're works in progress. It's kind of like, um, you know, when a computer company or work, is working on a program, like uh, when Google, for instance, introduced Gmail. Did you know for years it was a beta site? You know what a beta site is, don't you? It means that it's still in process, we're still working out. It's got bugs. It's not perfect. There are going to be some things that are not going to work well. They call it a 
beta site, right? And what that means is, of course, there's going to be imperfections. They've got to be worked out. And if you really want to be nice, once you find them, contact us, tell us, so we can try to fix this and make it better. Because it is a beta site. It's kind of like this. It's like a grace-expected site. It's a work in progress. Well, guess what? Christians. We are all beta Christians. We're works in progress. Nothing perfect about us. We've got relational breakdown. We are disappointed by our own behavior, right? We, we think, that, like, man, we're walking with God. We've got maturity. We exercise self-control through the Spirit. We always say the right thing. We extend love. We turn the other te- cheek. We're putting another's interest before our own. But in reality, what happens? Uh, it doesn't always work that way. We have breakdown. They're, we're beta Christians, right? And, friends, what, what needs to take place is that we need grace. It starts first and foremost with you and I personally understanding the grace of God. Understanding that God loves us unconditionally. Frankly, there's probably people in this auditorium that looking in the mirror, you just tear yourself into pieces. It's like a torture chamber. You rip yourself to shreds. You are always... I'm such a sorry excuse for a person. And you, you don't believe the gospel in that sense. You don't believe that you're loved unconditionally, that, that God loves you tremendously, that he's always with you, and that he's, he's continuing and starting a good work in you, and he's going to bring it to completion. And once you and I really understand the grace of Christ and the power of the gospel, of what it means to be united with Christ, we then can start being gracious with one another. We don't have to, re, uh, to return tit for tat. We don't have to fight back. We don't have to rip someone. We don't have to ignore people. We can be gracious. Why? Because we're starting to understand the grace of God. And we understand we're in process. All of us are in process. We need grace. And that means at times, we're going to have to have the ability to agree to disagree. Like in marriages. There are going to be potentially times where you're going to have to agree to disagree. Not on a sin issue, but maybe you don't see eye to eye on something. In order to maintain your vows, you said, till death do us part, right? You did, didn't you? And you're at conflict. You can't see eye to eye. For the sake of leaving a godly legacy to your children, you know what you do? You stay with it. Why? You're going to have to agree to disagree because you recognize marriage is more than me being happy. Where did that become the end all? You know what marriage, the purpose of marriage is to glorify God. Making God happy by your behavior. Honoring Him and exalting Him by how you live your life. Right? That's the purpose of marriage. Despite what you're hearing on the radio or what you think is out there in the culture. Maybe you have to agree to disagree because there's something greater at stake. Same and true in business. If you're going to continue to grow, if you're going to be profitable, there may be a times with your business partner or two or three that we're going to have to agree to disagree, but we're going to move forward. Same in a church. Not on sin issues. Sin issues, we're going to call a spade a spade. We're going to address it and deal with it. But there might be some doctrinal differences on things that are not at all cardinal, primary. They're pretty secondary. Guess what? We can agree to disagree. Why? Because we are about the honor and glory of Christ. We're about the Great Commission. We want to see the gospel go throughout the entire world. We want to, as Jesus charged us, to make disciples of all the nations. If we're bickering and fighting and tearing each other up and ignoring each other, we are not going to be making disciples of all the nations. What are we going to be doing? We're going to be just tolerating one another. 
We're going to be distracted by such secondary issues, and we're so far off course. Paul says, I want you to look for the edification and building people up. And, you know, it's really interesting. Who's going to be our example, and how is this going to be possible? Well, look at the next verse. He brings up Jesus. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. And here he is. He's quoting from Psalm 69, verse 9, and he says, I want you to think of Jesus. He's not only your empowerment for a life engaged and unified, but Jesus is also your example. I mean, he's the one that took abuse. He took heat. He was mistreated. Why? Because he was serving the Father's will. It's really interesting. When God chooses to exalt unity, especially as when he moves through the Apostle Paul to write, oftentimes Paul writes, think of Jesus. Remember in Philippians chapter 2? You know that great chapter you probably tried to memorize it as a family, put another's interest before your own? Remember that one? And why do we do that? Verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. This is how Jesus worked. He voluntarily laid aside the exercise of his divine attributes, the prerogatives that he had as the living God, set some of those aside so he could serve the Father's will to become propitiation for our sins, redeem humanity, focusing on the honoring of the Father. In fact, he even went so far as to say, yet not my will, but yours be done. Remember when he's praying in the garden right before the cross? That's how you and I are to live. It's really interesting. If Jesus could endure insults of others, his followers should certainly be willing to put up with minor irritations occasioned by Christians on different points of view. You and I, if we're going to have unity, unity as God intends it, we need to be building one another up like the text says. Just like loving parents make sacrifices for their children, so you and I are going to find regular occasions to do just that. Remember in the, during the Iraq War, 2004, I'm sure you remember this particular incident. This is kind of travel the news. It was like one of these awesome stories. There was on a particular flight from Atlanta to Chicago, July 2004, uh, nine soldiers, they were Marines, coming back from Iraq on a two-week leave. And as they were boarding the plane, there was one of the people sitting up first class noticed this and uh, said, I, I would like to trade seats with one of those soldiers back there. I want to give up my first class seat. I want to sit back there in cattle class. That's how I travel, right? You know, you're all packed in there like sardines. You really get to know your neighbor kind of flight, you know? I, I want to trade seats with that soldier. Oh, okay. And, and then, and once... That happened, and they saw this. Actually, all of the people, till all nine soldiers got up there to first class, did the exact same thing. Like, I want to do that. And so they did. And it made a huge statement, and it made the news. This is like, wow, this is extraordinary. And Davila Evans, a flight attendant on American Airlines on that flight, said this, quote, It was a privilege to be flying with those two groups of unselfish people, those who would put their lives on the line to protect their fellow citizens' freedom, and those who are not ashamed to say thank you. Friends, that's the kind of attitude we need to have with one another. You, you're, you're far more important than me. How can I serve you? How can I build you up? How can I engage? How can I encourage? You know, if we're going to be the church that God intended, if we're going to have this kind of unity, we have to be building one another up. Let me tell you something else that's got to always be the ongoing reality. 
We need to be growing deep in God's word. Look at the next verse, 15.4. I got it underlined, got it marked by it. This is such a critical verse. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Whatever is written in earlier times, referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Now, you need to understand that uh, we're not under the authority of the Old Covenant, but all of the moral teachings there, they directly apply. Even though the Old Testament wasn't directly written to us, it was written for us. It is invaluable. It is the Word of God. And notice what the text does. It was written for our instruction. It guides us. It teaches us so that through perseverance that we have the character trait of keeping going on despite the disappointments, the trials, and the difficulties that life provides. We keep moving forward because we have the encouragement of the Scriptures and that we, the Scriptures give us what? Hope. You see, the Scriptures, you and I being involved in God's Word, It is essential for life, health, unity, and well-being. Paul's going to write in Romans 16 that he's got one of his guys that he's mentoring, a guy by the name of Timothy. Find him in chapter 16. Later on, toward the end of his life, Paul writes a letter to Timothy. And in it, he says this. Remember in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, he says, All Scripture is inspired by God. It's literally the breath from the mouth of God. All Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It's God's Word that does His work in the lives of His people. And how it works is as God's Word enters into your thinking, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God to accomplish the work of God in an individual's life. It's as if the Scriptures, the Word of God, is literally like the fuel and the Spirit of God engages it that brings about growth and maturity in our life. It's what leads us to mature. And you can't live without it. And it gives us, notice what it gives. That Notice see verse 4 that we might have hope, a reliance upon the Lord, a confident expectation that though it seems like it's all falling apart and I've made a lot of mistakes along the way, God is going to see it through. And this life is just but a dot on eternity. So how does the Bible encourage us? us? How does it work? What it happens? Well, I'll tell you, when you spend and develop patterns of being in the Word, you see the attributes and character of God on display. It's one of the reasons why we are in the Word. It's We see God because we have a tendency to not see Him. So we read the Word and all of a sudden we see His character and His, His work on display. And, and that's where hope is based. When you read the Bible, you encounter biographies of people. Saints. Some that did well. Some that failed royally. Some that recovered from their failure. Others that didn't. These are instructive. We learn from their example. God teaches us. One of the beauties of the Bible is it always keeps focusing us on Christ. It shows us our need for the Savior. It points out sin. What does sin look like? How is it manifested? We see incongruities between what the Scripture is calling for and our hearts, right? 
Well, that's all sin. That shows us our need for a Savior, and it keeps pointing us to Jesus. And what seeing Jesus and understanding what it means to be unified in Him, the Scriptures point out that God is changing us and transforming our lives. And furthermore, we realize that what we have here is just but a shadow of what is to come. We recognize that God has all eternity worked together for His glory. And one day, you and I, in just a short time, we're going to be in His presence. And we'll be thrilled and exalting God forever. It keeps focusing us on what is to come and being with Christ. And what happens is the Scriptures give us hope. And so, friends, if you don't have hope, if your hope isn't being encouraged and developed through the Scriptures, I'm going to guess that you're living a fear-dominated life. That you're making fear-based decisions, not faith-based decisions. Why? You have nothing to encourage your hope. Where does hope come from? 15.4, it comes through the Scriptures. Let me just ask you, are you living a hopeless life? Then what role does the Word of God have in it? On the other hand, if you want to experience hope, Renewal, strength, guess where it comes from? God working through His Scriptures. And Christians are never going to be unified. We're never going to be maturing. A church will never be what God intends unless the Scriptures, the Word of God, has an ongoing role. We have to have people that have a commitment to the Word of God growing deep in our lives. Where the vision, like the vision of fellowship, about people growing deep in Christ and knowing God and His Word and then branching out is a reality. And that tells us how important scriptures are to our life. It's like fuel to our faith. We can't be a church if we're not regularly engaging in the Word of God. And I'll tell you, that is the trend in Christianity today. Not, I'm not talking about just all these liberal denominations. We're talking even like evangelical Christian churches. Moving away from this book just to keep you happy and having a good time in Jesus' name. Get a few moral lessons, and that was pretty funny, and that was encouraging, and that's great, and we move on. But this book is being left behind. Sure, we'll carry it, but pretty soon we just stop carrying it because we never get it, or we'll just show it to you. In actuality, what's happening is is the life of your soul is being sucked out if the Scriptures have no role. The problem is we've forgotten just how important this book is. I was reading this guy named Stan Caffey in 2007. He uh, met the girl of his dreams, you know, been single for a long time, had a house and garage full of junk. And so he, he actually got rid of it all. And apparently you can sell stuff to Goodwill because he did. He sold bicycles, tools, computer parts. He had this tattered copy of the Declaration of Independence that had been hanging in his garage for 10 years. His future wife does the same. She had her own house. She sold all her junk, got rid of it. Well, it just so happens that um, that, that Declaration of Independence, this tattered copy that was hanging in his garage, um, it ended up being a really rare copy. It was a, a rare copy made in 1823, and apparently it was on display at a Goodwill store, and a guy by the name of Michael Sparks was shopping in Goodwill and saw this tattered copy of the Declaration of Independence, you know? And it was priced at $2.48. He's like, you know, do I get the extra small slushie at Sonic, or do I buy the Declaration of Independence here? And he said, I think I'll get it. So he buys it, and then he's like, you know, something's about this. And he had it appraised. And then he had it auctioned off. And if you read the story, you know they auctioned off for $477,650, that copy of the Declaration of Independence. Not a bad profit for a little bit of shopping at Goodwill, huh? You see, the problem was that uh, Kathy didn't understand the value of that document that he just had kicking around in his garage. 
And Kathy was asked about this, and he was quoted as saying this, I'm happy for the Sparks guy. If I still had it, it would still be hanging here in the garage, and I still wouldn't know it was worth all that. <laughs> Friends, that's how we are with the Bible. We're so familiar with it. we got like ten copies, five which match different outfits that we wear to church. I mean, we're looking good, right? We got, but we have forgotten the value of the Word of God. It is essential for perseverance, for staying with it, to not give up, and to give us hope. And that's why the Word of God has to have such a central role in the lives of His people. I was thinking, um, when I, before I came here, I was sent by a church in Portland, Oregon, Southwest Bible Church. And I remember standing in the hall with one of my disciples, the senior pastor, Scott Gilchrist. And I said, hey, you got any parting advice? What should I do? And he said this, what you need to do is you need to love the Lord, love the people, and teach the Word. Just do that. And that's what I've tried and endeavored to do far from perfect. But friends, it is in loving the Lord and, and loving the people and, and really growing deep in the Word. That's how a church really experiences the vitality and the unity that God is calling for and looking for. In fact, when it happens, it's like music to His ears. And finally, if we're going to be a church that is unified and growing and vibrant, we're going to be building each other up. We have to be growing deep in God's Word. And we need to be living for God's glory. Look at verse 5. Listen to Paul's prayer. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. You see that? The exact same qualities that God's word gives, God gives. Because they're inextricably tied. That's why we call it God's word. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind. You see that? With one another according to Christ Jesus. So that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we're together. If you see the one accord, it's not talking about like a Honda car. It's talking about that we're all unified. We're one. We got one voice. We are all about the exaltation and the praise of God. We want God to be looking good. We're not so concerned about us anymore. We're about Him. He says, so that you with one voice would glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, verse 7, Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. This is almost exactly what Jesus is praying for right before he goes on the cross, right? He's praying that we would be one just as he and the Father are one. That there would be a sense of unity. That we would be engaged. That we'd be accepting one another. That we would be... Loving one another. We not be caught up with dissensions and disagreements and arguments and, and tr- just acting the, like so trivial and so elementary. But that we would have a wholeness and a oneness and a care and a concern and a commitment to one another because we're looking to exalt God's name and we're looking to make him look good. Obviously, unity was a huge problem in the early church at Rome, wasn't it? You got a chapter and a half on these, on this issue, which is pretty amazing when you look at the, the book of Romans, a chapter and a half on the issue of unity and what that looks like and how we, the strong, are to engage the weak so that we all grow together for the glory of God. I mean, they had rich and poor, slave and free. You had folks that were pagan backgrounds, Jewish backgrounds, just confused, like no kind of real spiritual background, all coming to Christ and growing together, honoring God. It's like music to his ears. And friends, 
You see that in verse 7 where it talks about accepting, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us for the glory of God. We realize that Christ accepted us when we were sinful, immature, problematic, vile, ferocious, difficult. And yet he accepts us and helps us grow the attitude of Christ. That's to be our attitude. And if we're to be accepting one another, we have to learn the art of encouraging one another. There's a Sean and Leanne Tui. You probably remember the movie Blindside. About true story about this couple brings this kid in, and it's an awesome movie. A lot of fun. But they uh, they were kind of since they've been discovered. Like man, there's people out there in America that care like this, and so you know people want to know like what makes you tick like that. I don't function like that. How do why do you do that? They wrote a book called Heartbeat, and in this book uh, they talk about. Uh, a senator that they had met, and uh, and uh, this an event that took place in the senator's life. Uh, apparently, I didn't know this, but there's a little-known congressional program that w- awards internships to young people who have aged out of the foster care system. So, like, you went through the foster care system, you were never adopted. There apparently are finances available to hire these kids as interns. Okay, and so um, that's what they did. This senator did, and they employed one such man, young man. And the senator came breezing into the office early one morning because he had to get ready for a meeting. And he notices that this new intern, this kid, never been adopted. And here he is. He's working in the mailroom. And apparently he got in there early and totally reorganized and got everything in, like, top-notch shape. The senator's like, wow. He sells his, like, whoa. What, what happened here? This is awesome. This, is, this mailroom has never looked this good. You did an amazing job. Thank you. And ran to his office, gathering up all his junk, getting ready for the meeting. Comes back a few minutes later, and there's that same intern. He's crying. He's got tears coming down his face. He's like, whoa. So the senator said, son, are you okay? The intern said, yeah, yes. Well, did I say something to offend you? Well, no, no, sir. Well, well, what's wrong? And this is what this young man said. That was the first time in my life anyone told me that I did something good. Friends, just a little bit of you walking away from being self-centered to encourage and engage another. That can have a tremendous difference. It is so needed. If we're going to accept one another, invest one another, build one another up, we need to learn the lost art of encouragement. And extending encouragement is like one of the greatest gifts of acceptance. And that's what we need to do. I remember reading about Jackie Robinson, and the uh, first African-American player to play Major League Baseball. And while he's breaking baseball's color barrier, did you know that every stadium that he played in, he got jeered and ripped on, made fun of? I mean, a lot of abuse. It's like, this America? And are you serious? We're behaving that way? Yeah. Tearing him up. And then on, on one occasion, he's playing home field, playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And uh, Robinson made an error. You know, in baseball, they keep track of errors, right? He makes an error. And the, his home fans, Brooklyn, they started ripping on him and cheering him and making fun of him. And Robinson's standing there on second base, and he is just totally defeated. As he's listening to as apparently the fans of the team ripping him apart. And then the shortstop for the Brooklyn Dodgers, a guy by the name of Pee Wee Reese, came and put his arm around 
this player. And, and he just stood there with Robinson. And then he turned and faced the crowd. And apparently it all went quiet. And Jackie Robinson later said that when Pee Wee Reese put his arm on his shoulder, it saved his career. That's what we need to do. We need to engage, accept, set aside petty differences and our self-centeredness and selfishness to engage the hearts of people. Why? Because we're living for the glory of God. And it's through Christ, through the gospel, because he's saved us from sins. He's literally placed his spirit in our life. We can live differently, and we should, because that's what the scriptures call for. And through Christ, he makes that possible. He empowers us and enables us. And it is music to God's ears when we're focusing on loving people, his word, and his glory. Imagine like Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. If just like the violins played. I mean, I like the violin. That's great. But it was made for every string instrument. And it was made for brass and percussion and the woodwinds and even human voices. And when they all come into play, it is absolutely marvelous. And so it is with the church. You know what? We need each other. And we need to accept one another. Where we're at, we are all growing to the glory of God, to seeing Christ being matured in our bodies, individually and collectively. And when that happens, friends, it's music to God's ears. When we focus on loving God, His Word, and His glory. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank You for an amazing passage of Scripture. And, Father, if there is someone here today who has never trusted in Jesus, maybe you've heard about Him, They've even been in church for a while, but they've never truly trusted him. Would they just pray with me and say, God, I turn from self. I totally get the self-centeredness deal. I turn from my sin. I trust Jesus as my Savior and the Lord of my life. And Lord, we're going to take just a minute and ask you to really direct our hearts as to what this text will look like in the development of our church. And so would you even now just really help us understand your guidance in our heart as we take a minute to pray. Lord, you know our shortcomings, but we know your grace. We know your goodness. And God, we just pray that these verses would be woven into the fabric of our being, that we would be the church that you've intended us to be for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.